Hi, and welcome to another episode of SwitchCast, a podcast delving into the world of film brought to you by the team at Switch. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Charlie David Page. I'm Jess Fenton. I'm Daniel Lemon. And I'm Chris Edwards. It's Thursday the 28th of December 2017. On this week's show, we look back at the best films of the year. As each of us choose our top five films of 2017, there's sure to be some controversial choices in the mix. Plus, we check out the year ahead and share the films we're most excited to see in 2018. And as always, all our reviews and giveaways. Let's get straight into it with three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Jess jumped at the chance to visit this tiny town, so how did you enjoy your trip? In the quiet nowhere town of Ebbing, Missouri, things get a shake-up when grieving mother Mildred, Oscar winner Frances McDormand, decides to put up three billboards calling out the local police department for failing to find the rapist and killer of her teenage daughter seven months after the event. With the chief, Woody Harrelson, not quite feeling himself lately, bumbling, drunk and racist Officer Dixon, played by Sam Rockwell, takes matters into his own hands, making things exponentially worse. It's a town divided while a heinous crime remains unsolved. I don't know what the police are doing. I hadn't heard a word from them in seven goddamn months. I'll tell you this, I've heard an awful lot from them since I put them billboards up. Keep a case in the public eye. They better your chance start getting it solved. You take me down and arrest me. They got nothing to arrest you for. Not yet, you ain't. The magnificent Frances McDormand is electric, filled with sass and balls as only Frances can do. Harrelson and Rockwell are brilliant as always, and the supporting cast, which includes Peter Dinklage, Lucas Hedges and Aussies Samara Weaving and Abby Cornish, just to name a few, are all outstanding. For a film about gross racism, death and an unspeakable crime, it is gut-hurtingly funny. The kind of funny that has the audience in such hysterics you can't hear the next line of dialogue. All thanks to Martin McDonough, the man behind deeply entertaining in Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. He has a gift for marrying the wicked and the righteous and the good with the ugly in one grey mass of drama and comedy you're never quite sure to laugh or cry at. Four stars. I cannot explain how much I love Frances McDormand. She's just so fucking good to watch. Um, So I cannot wait to see this. But also, I'm a big fan of Martin McDonough's. I think he is such a clever director and writer. Like, as you say, mingling genres seamlessly and fluidly and doing it in a way that is brilliantly funny. Uh, This is one of those films which I've been dying to see since I first heard about it. And it's so close now. It's so close. I can feel it. You can taste it. I can. Well, I don't know if I want to taste this particular film. But yeah, (laughs) I, I, I... I get your sentiment. Uh, allow yeah. me to be the dissenting voice in the room. Oh, yes. I, I agree. Francis McDormand yeah. is a legend. But I don't entirely subscribe to the idea that Mark McDonough's films are that great. I think In Bruges is a good film. I don't think it's a great film. I think it's an overstuffed, overlong, bit of a mess of a film. And McDonough's is a very well-respected playwright in the UK. But even his plays kind of suffer from the same problems. The only work of his that I've loved completely was his play The Pillow Man. But his Irish plays tend to, again, feel a little overwrought, a little overstuffed, a little bit of a mess. So as much as I'm looking forward to seeing this because of Francis McDormand, I'm a bit wary of it. I'm, I have to be honest. And the responses have been pretty mixed. As much as it's been getting a lot of awards attention, the responses from a lot of critics range from loving it to Finding it actually quite offensive. So I'm glad to hear that you've that you've enjoyed it, Jess. It makes me slightly more excited to see it because of the possibility I might really enjoy it. But yeah, I'm walking into this one trepidatiously. No, I 100% understand why anyone would find, would find this offensive. And trust me, it is filled with offensive stuff. Yeah, it is very mixed. And I can understand anyone who does sort of walk away going, ooh, maybe not so much. But I... Yeah, no, I did. I just find, I found this endlessly funny and disturbing and really, really heartfelt. And the, like I said before, the performances are just sensational. I started out very much as a Charlie in this situation. And I was hugely <laughs> excited because I'm a massive Francis McDormand fan. I really like In Bruges, although I never saw Seven Psychopaths. And just everything that was coming out about this film, just the cast then the premise, then the trailers. I was like, yep, I'm 100% on board. This is so enticing. It got really great reviews out of the festival circuit, but then 
recently, just in the past week or two, the tide seems to be turning mildly against this film in the critical discourse. And I don't know, things that I've kind of been hearing, it's really tempering my expectations, which I guess is probably good because maybe I love the film even more now. But yeah, it's an interesting one, particularly in this year, in this cultural environment, it may not be the film that we need right now. Yeah, there are a couple of moments in the film that sort of gave me pause as to whether or not I should be enjoying it or whether I should be enjoying it as much as I did. But at the same time, I sort of chose to see it for its intent. Obviously, this was not supposed to be malicious or racist in any way or insensitive. It was supposed. It is a piece of entertainment and a dark one at that, actually. And so that's why I ended up giving it such a high score and enjoyed it so much. That makes me excited. That does actually make me excited to see it. So, yeah, listening to a review made me go, okay, maybe there is something to be excited about with this film. Oh, also, sorry, just before we wrap up, <laughs> I could cheat at the end of this episode and use it as my film recommendation when it is not a film, but maybe I want to take care of Charlie's blood pressure. Um, <laughs> but recently, I think it was the New York Times did an incredible profile of Francis McDormand. It's this amazing series of interviews that have been collated into this article, and it's just fantastic, and she just seems like, oh, my God, the coolest, most amazing woman alive. I want to be her best friend. That's all I have to say. (laughs) Well, she's married to one of the Coen brothers. And so you can kind of see that side of her and like their films and how Mm. their personalities sort of come together and fit beautifully. I think she's been underrated for way too long. So I'm glad she's kind of like getting some actual real decent attention in a spotlight now. It's been far too long since she got her really last recognition with Fargo. So I think this is it's it's time that she's getting recognized again as a really fucking amazing actor. Well, if you love Frances McDormand as much as we do, you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri is in cinemas from New Year's Day. Also out on January 1st is Pitch Perfect 3. Our Bellas have moved on from college and find real life is a lot tougher and less musically oriented than they had hoped. As one final hurrah, they get the old gang back together. But as they move towards their final performance, how will they cope with moving on for good? I would do anything to see what you guys get. Every year, the USO puts on this performance to support the troops in Europe. One last show together. Who's with me? Hell yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Spain, Bellas. So this is the first base. Will we be going to second base with you guys? That's a no for me, so. On the tour, we've got three bands. You guys just sing other people's songs, right? Like a cover band. They're trying to intimidate us. Let's just do what we do. A riff off. Running her hands through my fro, bouncing on twenty fours while they sing on the radio. So wake me up when it's all over. We like to keep it oral. Everybody is better at the one thing that we do than than we are at that thing. The third outing of Pitch Perfect 3 is distinct from its predecessors in one big way. It's not entirely focused on the music. Here we're off on an adventure, travelling the world. And in fact, it's a much better film when it's not concerned with the singing. And the best bits are in the last 20 minutes when it loses focus on the Bellas competing and just becomes wildly fun. But those first three quarters are just messy and unoriginal. We've seen all the riff-offs before, only this time it's with bands with instruments, so it's no real competition. The musical choices follow the trend of Pitch Perfect 2 and favour modern songs over classics, which was always a big mistake. The script itself also has some of the cringiest dialogue of the series, and is missing the bulk of the humour and heart that made the first film especially so endearing. Not even Anna Kendrick can save this film. Her usual effervescence is lacking here. However, John Lithgow is the true abomination here. Without ruining too much of the surprise, his role is actually a huge amount of fun, but his accent is so unbearable that I wanted to claw at the screen every time he appeared. In the end, fans of the franchise will probably be happy. But don't expect the laughs or lyrical prowess that it promises. This swan song from the Bellas didn't blow me away, but it's enough fun to keep you sufficiently entertained. Three stars. I love the Pitch Perfect movies. The second one, okay, I will admit the second one. Not so much. 
is shit. Is shit. Oof, the yeah. first one is glorious. <laughs> the first one's glorious. And everything that you love about the first one is, again, repeated in the second one with your riff-offs and your mash-ups and your funny characters and more Fat Amy than you can poke a stick out and it's great. So while I, I am cautious about the third one because the second one was so bad, I am just more pitch perfect is never enough. And I'm so excited. So excited. I always think the music is obviously the true winner at the end of the day for these films. And they're just great. And I love I love, I love there is I love there is one thing about this film though that is a bit of a um a, a red flag to me of something that makes me very cautious of it, and that Ruby is that Rose? Ruby Rose is in it. <laughs> <laughs> a person who, as far as I know, has actually become famous for actually not doing anything. Um, it always feels <laughs> mm-hmm. like it's the last ditch thing to put Ruby Rose in your film or hey your series. Now, she so- was perfectly fine in Orange Is the New Black. <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to say triple X, but anyway. Oh, no, I wish I could say that. I wish I had seen She's playing a character called Calamity. Like, seriously. (laughs) She's in a a band, man, so you could have a cool name. (laughs) Yeah, look, I don't don't get her appeal either, but, you know, whatever. But who cares because Anna Kendrick's in it. Anna Kendrick, Emily Camp, Brittany Snow, Rebel Wilson. I'm down. Hayley Steinfeld kicking off her pop career like yeah i'm in as much as pitch perfect 2 was not great at least they're continuing with the trend of now having women direct mm-hmm. the pitch perfect films yeah elizabeth banks directed the second one not particularly well and keep working with a female team as they have with they've got trish sia um i think it's sia how you pronounce her surname yeah. um directing number three so at least at least they've got conviction as to why they make them and at least they're sticking to that conviction and hey trish sia directed <laughs> okay goes here it goes again yeah, and not much else that's been good, so... <laughs> hey, I mean, if you're going to be allowed to direct an OK Go video clip, you must have some talent. At least she'll get the musical numbers. She's done a step-up movie. But a step-up movie, because there's so I remember many. hearing, like, decent things about that step-up movie, though. <laughs> Which one was it? All in. Step Up All In. The fifth one. Which is not one of the better ones. Didn't it have, like, a water I dance? I think it was number 27. I don't know. Yeah, what are the kids these know. days like? I just... Which one was it? I don't even know. You should know, youngin. I should. I should. Yeah. Because I, as the sole voice of anyone under 55 years old on this podcast... Um... <laughs> oh, it's the fifth one. Oh, it's when they go to Vegas. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Okay, no, that one's not good. Well, Pitch Perfect 3 is in cinemas from New Year's Day and check out my full review at makethetheswitch.com.au. Now it's time to look back at the last year in cinema with all of Switch's members sharing their top five films for 2017. I love this bit. I love hearing this shit. This is great. (laughs) There will be tears and not just because Brent's on a plane. So you probably saw all those fucking films on a plane. Well, wait in here. But first, I have my top five. So let me run through them. Number five, I chose The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Mm. mainly because it was a film which really stuck with me. Uh, It's just something I could not get out of my head. We've talked a bit about on the podcast before, a little bit about Yorgos Lanthimos's style, the fact he does this kind of this world with no emotion, and Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, and the star of this film, Barry Keoghan, are just superb in this. They play along so well, and by the time you get to the end of it, you are so full of tension and discomfort. It's just spectacular what he can do. So, yeah, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, number five. Number four, Baby Driver. What a film. This is just technically and creatively stunning. Edgar Wright is a god. You've never seen anything like the visual and music combinations before. They are just superb. And it's also the best role I've ever seen for Ansel Elgort. It is, he's so great in this. He essentially has no dialogue, but he speaks volumes with his performance. Uh, It's just the kind of Hollywood film that you do not see these days. A Golden Globe nominated performance too. Yay. Yes. Yeah, let's not forget that. I've got uh, God's Own Country in at number three. I haven't had the fortune to see Call Me By Your Name yet. I suspect if I do, it will change my top five a little bit. But God, this was a good film. It's one of those films where everything just comes together so perfectly. It's it's raw. It is genuine. It's emotional. The two leads are just so beautiful together. Uh, Francis Lee has created a film that is so well crafted. It is just so gentle and delicate. So for me, that's why that's slotting in at number three. Number two, speaking of brutal honesty, 
a monster calls. I was incredibly broken by this film. It just hurts me inside to think about. It is so beautiful. It is rich and lush. And the actors are just such a great cast, but you cannot go past the 13-year-old Lewis McDougall's performance. Like He's just stunning in this. The film does not sugarcoat the topic of death at all. And so it is just such a harsh film to watch. And it is so, so devastating by the time you get to the end. But my God, it is worth the ride. And number one, my number one film this year. So as I mentioned last week, Coco is such a joyous film. And to me, I needed something really uplifting and happy after the fucking mess of 2017. So that is why Coco is my number one film is just this beautiful story of a boy transported to the land of the dead. Uh, It has such amazing writing. It is so sensitive. It is absolutely heartfelt and it's easily the best Pixar film we've seen in years. And just the songs in it are just spectacular. This was one of the films I left the cinema grinning from ear to ear and could not go past in my number one position. That's my top five, guys. Good the hustle. This film was number one. I love it. I know. Even I was surprised by that, but honestly, couldn't go past it. Just mm. couldn't find anything that topped it for me. So I also love the divide. Like number one is Coco, and number five is the killing of a sacred deer. Like, you couldn't get two <laughs> films further apart. Is that an insight into the? I don't like that. Have a lot in one. <laughs> I think it says a lot about me. Yeah, is that an insight just, into the timeline yeah, of 2017 taste. for you? <laughs> it's hopeful, at least. It begins with devastation and ends with the faintest glimmer. <laughs> That's literally what 2017 was. Like, literally. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, diverse list, but I feel like it kind of rounds out a lot of what I saw at the cinema. There's a lot of other great films that I saw, but they are the top five releases for 2017 for me. All right, so um, Jess, I reckon it must be your turn to run us through your top five. Tis my turn. Okay, so starting off at number five, I'm going with The Big Sick. If there's anything I love more than a good romance, it's the fact that it's a true story. And this one, which is the true story of Kumail Nanjiani and his wife, Emily V. Gordon, was absolutely sensational. Um, This is a Judd Apatow-produced film as well. I adore Judd Apatow films. Is he a flawed filmmaker? Yes, but I love him nonetheless. I have been a big fan of Kumail Nanjiani for a while, so to see him take centre stage as a romantic lead and the fact that this film involved culture clashes and all that sort of stuff and stand-up comedy, which I'm a huge fan of, I just thought it was brilliant. I actually saw it several times at the cinema. Uh, Number four, The Edge of Seventeen. It's been a year, like a whole year since I saw this film. It came out the very beginning of January 2017. Yeah, it was New Year's Day, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was a 2016 release for the States, but for Australia, uh, this is still eligible. Edge of Seventeen. I'm a woman in my early 30s, so it's been a while since I was 17, but I bawled my eyes out the entire way through this film thinking that I'd found a kindred spirit in its lead character, Nadine. I'd never been through anything that this character has been through in my entire life or even close to, but for some reason I've never felt so connected to a person on film. I regressed back to a 17-year-old the entire time I was watching it and I just adored every single second of it. I think as a, as a coming-of-age film, as a film about girls, um, about growing up, it was written and directed by a female as well with a female lead. I thought it was absolutely sensational and a must-see for anyone going through that. Number three was Get Out. Comedian, writer, director who has made one of the most brilliant films of 2017 and it's a horror. Not only did that sort of blow my hair back, but the film is sensational. It's all about subtext. Like it scared the shit out of me the first time I saw it. And obviously that would be lost in repeat viewings, but it's all about subtext, the African-American culture, all the layers, the, the many, many, many layers that there are to this film are absolutely brilliant. The further you dig, the better the film gets. Anyone who has seen it, anyone who hasn't seen it, just um, the keyword is research. Like, just look into this film. The more you do, the more you're going to love it. Number two was one of Charlie's is Baby Driver. Yes. I'm a huge fan of Edgar Wright, and I thought this was, you know, as many Fast and Furious films as there have been, (laughs) this has to kick them all out the gate in terms That's of... like um, an entire franchise paling yeah, in no, comparison in, to this one film. Yeah, in terms of like car chases and just stunt driving films there are, this one was a... 
I've called it a four-wheeled ballet with a symphony accompaniment. The soundtrack is absolutely killer. The performances are great and the whole concept was absolutely brilliant. And this movie was, I called it in a word, this movie is cool. It is a cool, cool, cool film. I absolutely loved it. And number one should come as no surprise for anyone who listens to this podcast every single week. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's going to name this as their top, but it is Call Me By Your Name. This film is exquisite. It will take home the Best Picture Oscar next year. It will award the Best Actor Oscar next year in Timothy Chalamet. It is devastating. It is absolutely beautiful, beautiful to a T. And I cannot wait for everyone to see this film and to agree with me. <laughs> I love being right. <laughs> How good's being right? So there we go. Those are my top five. Good list, Jess. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Thanks. It's pretty remarkable that you had, the, like, the age of 17 made that strong an impression that it stuck with you for a whole year. Oh, yeah. I, I wanted to put it on my list yeah. last year, but because of the January mm-hmm. 1st release. Oh, yeah, no, I'm 100% with you. I've been holding on to it for you. 12 months. I al- it almost made my list as well, spoilers. It's just so good. I rewatched it, yeah. I think, a few times during the year, and it holds yeah. up every time. The humour, yeah. the heart. Yeah. It's devastating and hysterical. It's amazing. Absolutely. Okay, well, Daniel, it's your turn now. What are your top five films for 2017? Well, my pick for number five on my list was Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's harrowing, spectacular masterpiece. I think it's probably the most impressive technical achievement, as far as I'm concerned, of the year. I walked out of it pretty shaken. Chris and I both went to see it together and I was kind of dry sobbing by the end of the film because I was just so overwhelmed by it. And I'd been told by a lot of people that it was a very emotionless, very cold film, but I found it one of the most deeply moving films that Nolan's made. I really love the stuff he's been making since he finished the Dark Knight trilogy and I think this may actually be his best film. If you haven't seen it, try and see it on the big screen. At some point, you will never see anything like it. I still don't know how he pulled off half the stuff they do in the film. It's yeah, it's an incredible film. My pick for number four is actually a film similar to Jess with The Age of 17. It was a film that had technically come out in the US in 2016, but was released in Australia in 2017. And that is Pablo Lorraine's Jackie. We talk a lot on this podcast about how we are dissatisfied with the biopic form and how uninteresting and how it lacks creativity. This, to me, typifies how you can push that form into a really interesting and affecting uh, Mm. something far more exciting. It's weirdly camp. It's very dark. It's oddly funny. The style and the textures are so fascinating. And I found myself very affected by it particularly from Natalie Portman's performance, which I think is the best performance she's ever given. And I actually do think it was the best performance out of that lot of best actress from the Oscars earlier this year. So yeah, I Pablo Lorraine's Jackie would be my pick for number four. My pick for number three is the same as Charlie's. It's God's Own Country, Francis Lee's uh, debut film. Woo! Yeah, again, all the films on this list had a really profound effect on me and each of them in a very particular way. I, as a theatre director, am very interested and keep exploring the idea of what it means to be a man, what masculinity means. And this film, to me, was all about that. Yes, it was about two queer characters, but that seemed to be part of the context for exploring how masculinity relates to love, affection, touch, belonging. Uh, There were moments in it that was so painful that I found myself scrunching into my seat just from how overwhelming it was but also how incredibly hopeful and beautiful it is. And the two performances from Alex Acreoni and Josh O'Connor in particular are extraordinary. It's a really spectacular debut from Francis Lee and it's already winning awards in Britain and hopefully will lead that straight to BAFTA's glory. My pick for number two is going to be a bit of a surprise because it should be my pick for number one. But again, because of release dates, it's not. My pick for number two is Call Me By Your Name. (gasps) I have never hidden the fact that I love this film. I love it deeply. Again, I agree with Jess. It should win Best Picture. Timothy Chalamet will win Best Actor. It's an extraordinary, miraculous, transcendent masterpiece. And a film that has really stuck with me. Uh, And the emotions of it have come back and risen up again at really unexpected moments. So I still find myself... Like a part of me is kind of shaking and my eyes start to water up because what a beautiful expression it is of what love means, of the idea of being seen as something worthy of love and what it is the first time that you feel that. 
And again, another extraordinary LGBTIQ plus film. So my number one then is a film, again, that came out in 2016, but was released in 2017 in Australia. And similar to Jess, it was the first film, new film I saw this year. And it has been my number one from the beginning, and it has never changed. And that's Barry Jenkins's Moonlight. Just, I mean, there's not really much else to say about it. I just think it's a perfect film. And it actually encapsulates all the things I love about Call Me By Your Name and God's Own Country brought to the forefront in Moonlight. I can't comprehend it. It's a film I can't, I can't comprehend the scale of it. I can't comprehend the miracle of the performances of the three actors playing Chiron. I can't comprehend the meticulous artistry of it. I think it's the best film of the decade. So if it hadn't been released in 2017 in Australia, Call Me By Your Name would definitely be number one, but Moonlight is my number one pick for this year. And geez, that's three LBGTQ films yeah. in yep. your top five. That's a big reflection on the kind of year it's been. It's And that, that's and impressive. like, you know, if I looked further down the list of the films that I've loved, I mean, there's been other queer films like The Ornithologist, um, Beach Rats I also really enjoyed. I can't wait to see A Fantastic Woman. I appreciated a lot about BPM. I didn't love it, but I appreciated a lot of things about it. It is, and we've said this many times, it feels like a banner year, but those three films in particular feel like they complement each other really beautifully and feel like they're almost in conversation with one another. And Jackie was almost, almost on my list as well. It's, I think it's probably Fuck, number it's six so good. for the year. Like it's, it's so fucking uh, good. Oh, it's, I love yeah. it so much. Oh, it's so odd. Uh, it's such an odd film. Oh. <laughs> in yeah. a year of despair, disturbingly bad biopics like it's one of the real highlights it's just so exceptional in terms of what it does with with that story yeah it's not really even a biopic at all it hits you so hard like when it builds towards the ending where you see the recreation of the assassination itself just the images in it the image of jackie uh, of jackie kennedy standing in that pink outfit covered in blood or that shot of Natalie Portman wiping the blood off her face and crying in the mirror. Mm. It's, it's an extraordinary, surreal, bizarrely funny, oh, I love it. I just love it. And just so tetchy. It is who Jackie was as a person, which is in real life, I guess. It's just, it's not pleasant. It, or at least who Jackie was at that time. It like, doesn't it's, try doesn't, and glorify her. It doesn't, all, it doesn't try and make you feel comfortable yeah. at any yeah. point. Yeah. I also love the fact that Jackie's story is one that's been around for so long, but like before any of our times, that it kind of has this Chinese whisper effect where it just, a lot of the details get dropped. And then this film sort of brought them all to the forefront again, where you realise that the interview that this film is based on, it did take place a week after the assassination of her husband and how she was treated and how she chose to deal with with it and the fact that she was taking care of two small children at the time and um you know the hoopla that was the funeral at the time and everything that she went through and she was you know you forget she's just a person as well she's you like you also she forget how she was just a woman who was rushed into was. this limelight and it was yeah mm. And she was so vulnerable and so devastated at the time. And she was incredibly resilient and she was a brilliant woman. And uh, no, you're right. It was, a, it was a, it's a quirky film, but I thought it was a great one at the same time. And I, I adore Natalie Portman. I thought she did a brilliant job. In the face of all the kind of aristocracy royalty porn that is being poured on us at the moment with things like The Crown, this feels revelatory and incredibly dangerous, a film because it presents this idea of the kind of Camelot myth, the idea of these perfect, beautiful people living in this perfect, beautiful place, having terrible things happen to them. But it's fettered and and festering under the surface. It's not afraid to actually break that down and explore it as opposed to just presenting it. I'm glad to see other people really love it. That's great. Maybe we should just have a Jackie episode. Oh, my God. I was going to say, you'd think we all made this number one or something. It's... <laughs> I know. I'm so glad because I when I saw it, it was in the middle of the start of the year, so I didn't get to talk to many people about it. I'm so glad that everyone else really enjoyed it. That's good. Oh, how lovely. <laughs> so Brent has submitted his top five to us. Uh, let's have a listen. And my top films for 2017 were number five, Kedi. It is a beautiful documentary about the cats in Istanbul and how they've changed the lives of everyone they interact with. If you don't want to adopt a cat by the end of it, you're a heartless monster and I don't think we can be friends anymore. Number four, God's Own Country. It is such simple and beautiful storytelling that it's hard not to be affected by the love story in this film. Number three, Thor Ragnarok. I liked the way that they decided to go for a much more comedic take on Thor, and Marvel has done this wonderful thing of showing that they can actually be more comedic in their universe and not have to worry so much about the heaviness and the drama, and I think that's what obviously separates Marvel from DC. 
Number two, now I know what I just said about Thor Ragnarok being light and funny, number two is Logan, which is quite dark and dramatic for a Marvel film, but it also took a risk and the risk paid off. So Thor Ragnarok took one risk, Logan takes another, which is a much more serious, much more grown up look at the Marvel Universe, but it's a beautifully done action superhero movie. Could you ask for anything more? And my number one film for 2017, I know you're all dying to hear this, it is the League of Extraordinary... No, it's not the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It's actually A Monster Calls. I've not been affected by a film so much in a long time. Oh, and it wasn't just the gins on the plane. It is harrowing, beautiful, and so well told that if you aren't affected by it, much like if you aren't affected by Keddie, you're a heartless monster. But A Monster Calls is my number one pick for 2017. Two Marvel films. Bravo, Brent. Someone had the guts to say it. And blockbusters. In fact, they're the first genuine blockbusters of any, on any of our lists, aren't well, they? Well, yours had one, Daniel. Yeah. I, I would hardly call Dunkirk yeah. a blockbuster. Uh, not, not by comparison to a Marvel film. <laughs> <laughs> I'd call Dunkirk a blockbuster. Yeah, I think Warner Brothers would call it a blockbuster too, oh. just quietly. In, in terms of Marvel films, it's not quite the gazillion True. dollar film we're talking about, that Brent was talking about. But yes, it was a, Dunkirk was a big film. But hey, Thor and Logan were fucking fun Logan films. Logan was they a were, they were great Such films. good action entertainment. Hunt for the Wilder People was on, I think, all of our lists yeah. last literally year. Literally everybody's. Yeah, literally yeah. everyone's yeah. last year. So Brent came through with the goods and put Takai with Titi on top again. Whee! Thor Ragnarok was awesome. Okay, well, uh, now it's time to check out Jake's top five. Number five, In This Corner of the World. The beautiful anime drama In This Corner of the World provides a history of wartime from the perspective of an ordinary family living in a village in Hiroshima in 1935. Adapted from Fumio Kono's manga of the same name by director Suno Katabuchi, this folktale-like story delves into the daily lives of the little people, while the war looms like a storm cloud on the horizon. Sad, but ultimately heartwarming, this film edges out Loving Vincent as the best animated movie of 2017. Number 4. Logan For Hugh Jackman's final outing as the iconic Wolverine, director James Mangold took full control of Logan to craft one of the strangest and arguably the best superhero films yet. An R-rated post-apocalyptic road movie, slash western, the rift more on George Stevens' Shane, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, and George Miller's Mad Max than Marvel comic books. Number 3. Good Time a pulsating, modernised film noir thriller from the Safdie brothers, Good Time has been likened to the gritty work of Abel Ferreira and Sidney LeMay's Dog Day Afternoon. Big-headed Robert Patterson turns in his best performance as a nervy-eyed criminal, paired with Ben Safdie as his mentally challenged brother. With electric cinematography and Daniel Lopatin's throbbing score, Good Time is a delirious panic attack of a film. Number 2. The Florida Project Featuring Willem Dafoe as a motel manager, the Florida Project follows fringe dwellers living week to week in rundown budget accommodation in the long shadow cast by Disney World. Sean Baker's film is a lyrical evocation of American childhood, and he and Chris Burgock's screenplay touches upon the bleakness and the monotony of the lives of the poor in America with a mix of gut-wrenching honesty and good humour. Number 1. Blade Runner 2049 Director Danae Villeneuve, cinematographer Roger Deakins, production designer Dennis Gasner, and writers Hampton Fancher and Michael Green crafted a worthy sequel to Ridley Scott's 1982 landmark sci-fi original, as well as an absorbing neo-noir detective film riffing on Robert Town's Chinatown and The Two Jakes. I was gutted by the painful belly flop Blade Runner 2049 made at the US box office. Yeah, I agree with him. That, that Blade Runner 2049 flopping was pretty harsh, was pretty hard to take when after all of the amazingly bad blockbusters we'd had the whole year to have something that was genuinely really interesting um, and daring. It was yeah. a surprise too. Like I did, I certainly didn't see that coming. It's one of the uh, more disappointing failures, uh, like box office failures of the year. Well, considering there are so many worse films mm. out this year, of which we will talk about a bit later on, but uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of baffling as to why it was so dismissed, I guess, yeah. by, by audiences yeah, it was, it was everywhere. Sad. I think Dunkirk is the is the most impressive technical achievement. I would probably say that I think the Blade Runner 2049 would follow it just behind for me. Chalk me up as ridiculously happy that someone found room for good time on one of their lists though oh i was gonna say i'm i was really surprised it didn't make it into your top five you were like raving about it at the melbourne international yeah and it's actually only gotten stronger in my mind since seeing it which weirdly happened throughout the film as well like daniel and i had just watched call me by your name he'd fucked off because he was having a breakdown somewhere and then i was sitting in this film (laughs) realizing i was like mildly (laughs) drunk um and so 
delivering up over the course of the first half hour and being like kind of off foot <laughs> by this film. And then realizing as it went along, I was like, oh no, this film is actually great. Oh no, this film is actually fan-fucking-tastic. So I'm really, really happy that someone found space for it. I'm struggling with this one. I really hate Robert Pattinson. <laughs> so the idea that like so many people yeah. are screaming to watch yeah. this You gotta film, do it. Like, you gotta oh, do it. He's so good. I do praise Jake's inclusion of the Florida Project. Like that was definitely in my top 10, but uh, yeah, it just didn't quite make the five. So, but it's a great movie. Okay. Well, let's see what Chris does have in his top five. Lucky what less. is your number five, Chris? Well, first of all, I think I have to say that this list might make me sound a little bit, I don't know, bipolar. It's kind of all over the place, but (laughs) it's really a pretty accurate description of this year. But anyway, coming in at number five is, well, because I'm an adult, Paddington 2. (laughs) I genuinely don't think I had a more enjoyable and just shamelessly fun time in a cinema this year than I did during Paddington 2. My God, it's just so beautiful. The sequel to 2014's Paddington, which I also really liked, but did not set me up to love this one as much as I thought it did. This one is such a beautiful riff on Wes Anderson movies, on Charlie Chaplin, on Buster Keaton, all in the package of a tiny bear living in London. And if you come out of 2017 and Hugh Grant doing a ridiculous Busby Berkeley style musical number is not one of your favorite cinematic moments of the year, then I just, I don't know what to do with you as a human being. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I just don't think I can trust you. And then from there, my number four is Moonlight. I would make a joke about how it's a spiritual sequel, but no. Moonlight, I can't talk about it nearly as eloquently as Daniel did earlier, but it is just a stunningly beautiful film. It is so humane, so generous, and such an incredible deep dive into one man's soul told over three different periods of his life. It's such a simple, intelligent conceit, and it's pulled off so incredibly well. And every time I talk about this film with someone, they all bring up how fantastic Mahershala Ali is, and they're like, oh, but he's not in it much, is he? And I say, well, of course not, no, because that's the point of his character. That's the point of his performance. He's so engaging, so charismatic, and then he's gone. Spoilers. It's a year old. You've seen it. And it's just another instance of that film being so intelligent and so fantastic, as well as so beautiful. Um, And at number three, I've got a German comedy, Tony Erdmann, which I saw about a year and a half ago at the Melbourne International Film Festival of 2016. But it's stuck with me ever since, and not just because it has one of the best karaoke scenes of all time. It's the story of a pranking father visiting his daughter, who's a high-powered executive at some corporation, visiting her for a week and outstaying his welcome and pranking her and convincing her co-workers that he is her CEO's lifestyle guru and it is ridiculous and hilarious and also devastating and beautifully explores depression and the global economic crisis and misogyny in the workplace and just a litany of things that sound like they should not go together, but they do and they all culminate in an incredible Whitney Houston song that is performed amazingly well and I've watched that clip on YouTube more than I care to admit. It is fantastic and everyone should see it. Number two is a film that has been mentioned already. It's Dunkirk. I think it is a beautiful communion between blockbuster filmmaking and auteurist filmmaking. It is heart-wrenching. It is not a cold film, as many people told Daniel and I before we went into that sun screening in 70mm. It is the technical achievement of the year, as Daniel said. I just, I can't speak about this film yet. I've tried speaking about it with other people and I just sound like an idiot because I love it so much and it's so fantastic. Like I can't justify it because it's just, it just is. It just is very, very good filmmaking. And so that brings me to number one, which is 20th Century Women. Much in the same vein as Dunkirk, I'm not going to sound particularly articulate when I talk about this film because it's stuck with me all year since seeing it in May And it is just so humane. It is just ridiculously beautiful. It is wise and warm and witty. And it is not an easy film. And it is not easy on its characters. But it loves them nevertheless. It has Annette Bening's best performance. It has Greta Gerwig's best performance. It has Elle Fanning's best performance. It's just ridiculously beautiful. And I can't praise it enough. 
and that's my top five. I'm glad you put 20th Century Women on there, Chris. At the time, I was a bit ambivalent towards you because we saw it together. I was a little ambivalent towards it, but it does kind of stick with you. And it has kind of grown in my mind significantly since then. And in a weird way, it felt like a good preparation for Call Me By Your Name and Lady Bird, which hasn't come mm. out yet, obviously, but will come out later in the, in the new year. But it kind of has the same, the same generosity and the captures the same sense of spirit of what it is to grow up. Yeah, I'm glad that you, that ended up on your list because I think it is, it is a very worthy film. Yeah, it really spoke to something about my childhood and my relationship with my parents. And it just made me feel a lot more than any other film this year. It made me feel, which is just something that has really stuck mm. with me since seeing it. Now, to celebrate the end of 2017, we want to know your top films from throughout the year. Submit your top five films to us for your chance to win a massive prize pack. Maybe you agree with some of our selections or perhaps you have some favourites of your own. Whatever the case, head to maketheswitch.com.au to find out how you can enter now. We also have plenty to look forward to in the year ahead, so we thought we'd share a few of the films we're anticipating in 2018. Award season is already looking great with the previously mentioned three billboards, I, Tonya, The Shape of Water, The Post, Phantom Thread, Ladybird, among others, but I thought it was a great opportunity to hear what the other members of Switch are looking forward to in the next 12 months. So, Charlie, what is high on your list? Well, this one's also going to be featuring at the awards season, uh, and it's something that Daniel and Chris and I were lucky enough to catch at Melbourne International Film Festival because it's not out in Australia until March. Jake caught it in Sydney as well, didn't he? Jake has seen it so far in Sydney. We all unanimously love it. It is hilarious. It is so offbeat. It is so witty and quirky. And oh, I, honestly, it's again, one of those films which shouldn't make sense with all of its parts, but it comes together so perfectly. The Square. It's just so well-crafted. Honestly, I don't think I laughed more at any other film at the Melbourne International Film Festival. And this isn't pegged as a comedy. It's not. But there is just so much going on in it that, uh, that you can't help but just sit there and piss yourself laughing at it trying to be serious, but at the same time not being serious at all. <laughs> there are some moments which... I don't know. Should I talk about it? No, don't. It's better if no one knows. Plus, we will discuss the square in a further episode. Hold, please, caller. We'll get to that at some point. We sure will. Let's (laughs) let's just say there are some spectacular moments in this film which will be ingrained in your mind forever as some of the finest pieces of comedy captured on film. It is just that good. Uh, And... The other one for me, which I cannot wait for and haven't seen yet, but (laughs) any day now, uh, The Isle of Dogs. I love Wes Anderson. This one looks like one of his most star-packed films ever, which is saying something, but it also looks freaking adorable. It's dogs and they're animated and I want it (laughs) now. I want it. (laughs) Like, that's the whole reason behind this one. Honestly, Wes Anderson does it for me. Uh, his work is superb as a director, as a writer. I just, oh, yes, bring it on. I can't believe I have to wait another three months until it comes out. Great. All right. Well, Jess, what about you? What are you looking forward to in the next the next year ahead? It is Marvel, 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 and more Marvel. We have four MCU movies coming out this year. First one out the gate is Black yes. Panther. Um, I'm not sure the order of the others, but we've also got Avengers Infinity War. Oh, I just jizzed in my pants a little bit. Deadpool 2. Woohoo! Which, after uh, the procurement of uh, 20th Century Fox by Disney, is remaining R-rated. Yay! And uh, the follow-up to Ant-Man, which is Ant-Man and Wasp. Um, so yeah, it's four movies. I like. It's just it's a bumper year for the MCU. I'm so freaking excited. I can't stand it. Um, and also, what I'm looking forward to is because Pixar is back on top with uh, the aforementioned Coco, which featured on number one and Charlie's top five list. The Incredibles two. It's been a while. How long have we been waiting for an Incredibles sequel? An incredibly and long coming. time. It is so exciting. It's so long. It's so long. In the whole five years that Paul and I have been together, he's asked me at least once every three months, when's The Incredibles 2 coming out? All he's asked me, consistently, every three months, when's The Incredibles 2 coming out? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't we all? But the kick in the pants is cinematically, it will appear as if no time has passed at all because they're literally picking up right off the back of the first one, the The bastards. The magic of cinema. The magic of cinema. 
It's gonna be amazing. Oh my god, The Incredibles two. I can't. I can't. I can't even. I can't even stand it. I'm, I'm having an even better. Moment. I've heard that it <laughs> foregrounds her more than yeah. him this time, and I'm so more so, Holly Hunter. I'm yes. so ready. Holly Hunter, where has she yes. been in my life? She was amazing in the so Big good. Sick, and now she's coming back. Yeah, through with The Incredibles two. I'm so excited. She'll probably get an Oscar nomination for The Big Sick. Like really, she'll probably get an Oscar nomination for it. I hope so. She missed out on Golden Globe. She got a set. She's got a SAG nomination. She missed out on Golden Globes. We'll see how she does for Oscars. More than an Oscar nomination out of the big sick for Holly Hunter, I want a fucking, like, action series starring Holly Hunter as someone who hecklers at comedy shows. Oh, my God. (laughs) I want, like, a cinematic universe of that. Well, Chris, what's going to have you, as Jess would put it, jizzing your pants in the next 12 months. Well, I don't know. I'm going to list a bunch of actresses because, you know, I'm a young gay man who likes film. So I'm just going to list a bunch of people. Here we go. Sandra Bullock, Kate Blanchett, Helena Bonham yes. Carter, yes. Anne Hathaway, yes. Harry Coon, yes. Viola Davis, Elizabeth Debicki, Michelle Rodriguez, Cynthia Erivo, Rihanna. What do these people all have in common? Surely you must be speaking of a porn that cannot possibly exist in a film. (laughs) Well, Daniel, my old, old friend, they are the casts of two of the most exciting films coming out in 2018, Ocean's 8 and Widow. So each of these films feature a group of women going after, I don't know, some sort of prize. I don't know. What do people stick with these days? Stick with prize. prize. Um, So Ocean's 8 is, is of course, the spinoff from the Ocean's 11 franchise with Sandra Bullock as Debbie Ocean, estranged sister to Danny Ocean. Um, And her team are going after something at the Met Gala. And I'm just so excited. And then there's Widows, which is Steve McQueen's follow-up to 12 Years a Slave, fucking finally. He is back. He's Let back, us be kids. thankful he is back. And this is about a team of women whose husbands are in a gang of thieves, but after a job goes wrong, they have to take over and finish the job themselves. And just, like, come on, guys. And it's written by Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl. It's written by Gillian Flynn, her follow-up to Gone Girl, the screenplay that she wrote adapting her own novel. Like, these two films are just ridiculously exciting. Like, listen to those loglines. Listen to the people behind them. Listen to the cast. Like, how do you not want those films inside of your eyeballs right fucking now? Oh, Chris, you forgot to mention Mindy Kaling. I did. Also, Mindy Kaling. Aquafina. <laughs> Anne Hathaway. That, actually, Mindy Kaling, leads very nicely into the two films that I am excited about for 2017, because one of them yes. does start oh, her. what's that, Daniel? Uh, the first one of the two I want to mention is starring Mindy Kaling along with the equally incredible cast of women is Ava Devaney's adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time. I studied the book back at uni and I actually don't remember anything about the book except that I really loved it because it was in a fantasy narrative class and so and it really I remember it sticking out as one of the books I really enjoyed but everything that we've seen from the footage in the trailers looks incredible the amount of uh, freedom that Disney have given Ava Devaney in the adaptation of the book is really exciting the insistence in embracing diversity both in terms of gender diversity and ethnic diversity is really exciting and it's directed by Ava Devaney like Selma is incredible. We've been waiting a long time to be able to see a new film from her. So, yeah, as soon as I saw that trailer, I went, nah, that's it, I'm there. Uh, The second film I have, I hope it's going to be released in 2018. We haven't been given a release date yet, but everything points to that it will, because apparently it's only finished. And that, to to follow on from my enormous love of Call Me By Your Name, is Luca Guadagnino's next film. But what he's chosen to do is something that no one should ever do, but because it's him... It's kind of intriguing and exciting, and that is his remake of Suspiria, the classic Italian horror film from Dario Argento. But he's filled it with a cast that includes Chloe Grace Moritz, Dakota Johnson, Tilda Swinton, Jessica Harper, who is in the original film. Like, just that in itself is thrilling and with Guadagnino's particular style he said that he's approaching this not as a remake but a reimagining I think it's a match made in heaven between a piece of source material and the director and obviously there are so many other films we will have there's there'll be an article up on switch listing a lot of the many many other films both major Hollywood films and smaller art house independent and foreign films that are coming out in 2018 this year took a while to warm up 2017 and it turned into a bumper year with the films coming out towards the end of the year 
it looks like 2018 is going to be a pretty consistently exciting one. So if you have any films that you're really excited about, please feel free to share them with us. Maybe we haven't heard of them, maybe we aren't aware of them, and hopefully we'll be able to feature as many of them as possible on uh, Switchcast in the future. Just a few short weeks ago, I claimed Switch's first ever half-star review with Woody Allen's Wonder Wheel, making it the lowest-rated film in our history, and it's now sparking our worst films of 2017 debate, of which there are many. So many. Wonder Wheel is a given, but now I'm going to throw another grenade, although I doubt I'm going to get much pushback with this one. Beauty and the Beast. Oh, thank you. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I hated this movie. I hated it so much. It's so validating (laughs) that it's now on Netflix because I get many messages a week of people saying, I've watched it. You are right. It's trash. And the bad trash. What the fuck was Okay, but Beauty and the Beast has given me one of my favourite film stories of 2017, which is I work in a cinema and I was on shift the day that Daniel got to see the preview of Beauty (laughs) and the Beast. And I saw him beforehand and he was kind of excited. And I also saw him afterward where he raged at me in a cinema (laughs) foyer for about (laughs) 10 minutes detailing exactly how devastated he was, how terrible the film was, and how I can picture that atrocious. Yeah. I was crying. I was so angry. He was literally crying, people. He was gesticulating like a madman. <laughs> and at least two or three of my coworkers have just checked in just to make sure that he's okay and to see... <laughs> If he's gotten over... He's not an escaped psychiatric patient or something. It looked likely at that point. It really did. I'm sure. Some other friends in the cinema who came out after he left and were like, oh, it was so beautiful, it was so fun. Oh, I mean, I guess this was bad. Oh, I guess this was bad. And I was like, yeah, uh, my friend um, had a bit of a different response. (laughs) And in like the two, three, four months afterwards, each of them came around and were like, Oh, yeah, no, it wasn't very good, was it? No, he was kind of right. Yeah, I read his review. Yeah, it was pretty bad. It kills me how much money this movie made. It was so bad. I can't stand it. Anyway. Disney, just stop Disney. remaking films. It's it, so easy. But that's their ah, thing now. They're remaking so all angry. of them in live action. It vindicated their well, live action is So angry. There's a big asterisk next to the term live action. But um, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, like Jungle Book and what have you. And the Jungle Lion Book King and the Lion King. Yeah, yeah. Why was Star- everyone so excited yeah, about Beyonce being in The Lion King? It was like. Fuckers, you're not going to see her face. She's playing Nala, who has three lines, and it's that's not going to change. Hang on, you're not going to see her va- her face. She's a singer. You don't see her face anyway when you listen to a no, CD true, or the radio. True. <laughs> I don't know. Country. I have a pretty active <laughs> imagination, Jess, and Beyonce's pretty great. So... I don't know about you, mate. Okay, I'm going to throw another title out there um, because this is actually by who I think is actually a a genuinely good filmmaker and this was just so shit. Ben Affleck's Live By Night. Oh, I didn't bother to say that. I concur. What the hell was that? I feel like we're watching a slow motion breakdown. from. Oh, yeah. You have to understand, this is his follow-up to the Oscar-winning Argo. This is what he decided to make after shelving all these incredible awards and it was... So embarrassingly it bad. Boring. It was so boring. It was so boring. Yeah, too long, and the script was atrocious, and most of the acting was so cringeworthy. I just, I don't know what was going on. I really felt like I stepped into a parallel universe with that one. Yeah. It was horrendous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it still it pales in comparison to my number one worst film of the year. Yeah. I mean, I had to sit through uh, The Circle, which was just delayed <laughs> oh over and over oh, and over Emma again. Watson, she's not having a good year, is she? <laughs> oh, she's really not. Um, I sat through The Foreigner, but still, still none. None come close to touching Geostorm. Oh, it. <laughs> the minute you talk about this film, I actually don't believe you. I think secretly you d- you actually love it. I think secretly it's, yeah, it's right? the love of your Daniel, life. Daniel, if I had to watch this film again, I may need to be removed from society. It's just, it's not a healthy thing to think about. This was just so bad on so many levels. Like, it actually would have been better if they'd taken it one tiny step further and actually made it like a film that's so bad it's good. But it was just teetering on the edge. So it's like, nope, 
It's just so horrible. My God, so many bad lines, accents, plot points. <laughs> the uh, use of physics and science in this film is non-existent. And it's about a geostorm, <laughs> like the biggest fucking storm to take over the world. If you'd world. like to know more, please listen back to one of our it's earlier episodes terrible. where Charlie talked about all the bad things about Jenny Storm for about 45 minutes. <laughs> Jealous, Daniel, Did for you, his time. Just because you haven't seen I'm it. So you just said it was the worst film of the year. Well, I do agree with Jess. I think Beauty and the Beast is an atrocious uh, pile of shit. And I would also probably throw The Dark Tower in there. Um, two films that were oh, adaptations yeah. of uh, things that I am very passionate <laughs> about and love very much. Um, treated with tremendous disrespect, not just for the source material, but for the audience. But my pick for what I think is actually the worst film of 2017 is also partly because of what has been happening over the last few months with the sexual assault allegations in Hollywood. And it links to what... I hated so much about this film, and that film is Benedict Andrews' film Una, which is the adaptation of David Harrow was played Blackbird. Oh, I forgot about that. The premise of the film is about a woman who was in a sexual relationship as a young teenager, I think 13, uh, with an older man. The film is set in the modern day, and it's her as a grown woman trying to track down this man to, to confront him about what had happened. The play is beautiful. The film is so problematic in terms of its gender politics that it was kind of staggering. I was a, I was really shocked at how misguided the film was. It objectified Una, played by Rooney Mara, as a sexual object. The way it represented women, the way it represented uh, victims of sexual assault, was disgusting. And I was offended and uh, horrified that this film exists. And also horrified that the film received as, as, as good a response as it did. Uh, it basically typifies exactly what the problem is. The representation of women in popular entertainment today. So Una really made me very angry. Two of my picks for worst films of the year are similarly problematic and uncomfortable. They are the film that we all hated on last week's episode, Downsizing, which yeah. enough has been said about that fucking shit show. <laughs> and the other one is Kingsman, The Golden Circle, oh. which we reviewed, I reviewed on an episode much earlier in the podcast. They are both just so dumb, so pleased with themselves and so uninterested in anything even approaching a complicated woman. Every female in both films are a joke. They are looked down upon by their filmmakers. They are looked at as nothing more than a punchline. And it's frankly disgusting. But my genuine pick for worst of the year is not a film <laughs> that is bad because of how problematic it is, although it is slightly problematic. It's a film that is bad because of how shockingly incompetent and dumb it is. And it is The Snowman. <laughs> it is the memeiest <laughs> film of 2017. <laughs> It was either going to be The Snowman or The Mountain Between Us, so... Mr. Police, so your film's shit. It is iconic. <laughs> I actually can't wait to watch it again, and I feel like, Daniel, we really need to watch it together before I move into state. I love that a whole bunch of film critics are trying to troll the New York Film Critics Awards by trying to get it nominated for things. I just love that. I love that. <laughs> Oh my god. Its existence is worthwhile oh, for the memes that just peered out man. relentlessly. So, uh, you know. You did not say that. Oh god. Mr. Police. Oh. Help. You Mr. Help. Police. Terrible. So, 2017 has been full of stinkers. There have been some really atrocious films, but we can wipe them all off the slate, start afresh in 2018, and let's kick it off with our picks, our cinematic inspiration for the week, some great films that you should see this week and why. Uh, now, for me, I chose Coco as my top film for the year because it was extraordinarily happy and joyous. And so I'm going to kind of continue on that trend, going back to a superbly, superbly joyous and life-affirming film from 2012, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Oh, yeah, that's a lovely film. It's such a beautiful film and it's one of the films that I love because it's so organic. It was created by this uh, collection of people who did it because they love doing it. We spoke last week as well about child performances and Quivagene Wallace, who is the young girl in this film, is just spectacular. She's so spunky and so outrageous that I just love it. And I saw this film at Sydney's Orpheum Theatre with the director, Ben Zetlin, uh, talking about the film afterwards. And 
it's it's all the more fascinating knowing how this film was put together. It's just such a labor of love for them. Um, so Beasts of the Southern Wild, start 2018 with a joyous celebration of life. Jessica, what about you for this week? Okay. Uh, speaking of joyous celebrations of life, I'm going to pull a Brent and I'm going to recommend a movie that is so <laughs> fantastically bad. It's, it's the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, isn't it? You're going to... You're gonna get no, it's not. I'm, no, it's, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry to disappoint you, but it's not. <laughs> okay, so Christmas was, th- was three days ago, but we're still in the season, so I'm going to give you a Christmas movie, actually. I'm giving you 1990s... Uh, Olivia Newton-John's tour de force performance as a mannequin that comes to life in A Mum for Christmas. (laughs) 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 This movie also has uh, Doris Roberts in it. (laughs) I've watched this film so many times. Right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> so for those of you have, who have yet to experience the pure, unadulterated joy of a mum for Christmas, you've got a little. She's I think she's supposed to be like a twelve-year-old girl. She's she, her mum died years ago, so she's she's just got a dad. And for Christmas, she wishes to have a mum, and she vents this wish to a very strange woman who works at a department store, and she ends up making a wish come true by making one of the department store mannequins come to life, and it's Olivia Newton-John. Oh, my God, the pure joy that comes from watching this movie. It's immeasurable, and I cannot recommend it enough, especially given this time of year. So, everyone, uh, flick around the TV dial. I'm sure it's a midday movie Mm. on 7, 9, 10, ABC, whatever. It has Doris Roberts as the woman who turns... I know, as the weird woman. It was a a Disney film. It was a Disney TV film. Oh, my God. From the director of The Man from Snowy River. (laughs) I know, George Miller. The other George Miller, not the George Miller. Yeah, okay, so No, sorry. Everyone <laughs> get on your clickers right now. Start channel surfing. I'm sure you'll find it. It is a mum for Christmas. You're welcome, Will. Thank you so much for this gift. This is a gift I will cherish forever. Being reminded oh that this film existed. I am a good fucking person. I don't deserve this. <laughs> okay, Daniel, how are you gonna top that this week? Oh, I'm bringing the mood right <laughs> down. Like, really. Um, um, what a shocking um, surprise. I started the year of this podcast with a serious, obscure art house film, and I'm going to end it with an obscure art, uh, serious art house film. I am recommending uh, Fritz Lang's 1931 masterpiece, M. Yay! Uh, yes, I love it. Which is uh, one of... One, yeah, it's one of the great uh, representations... It's one of the great representations of the complexity of evil and justice that I've ever seen on screen uh, and features uh, Peter Laurie in his first truly great performance as a uh, man who kidnaps and murders children. Yay! Um, the scene <laughs> the scene at the end, there, there is a courtroom scene at the end which is fucking extraordinary. Um, so Fritz Lang's M, it's incredible. It's a, it's a tough slog, but it's amazing. Oh no, I disagree. I don't think it's a tough slog. I think it's a great, great thriller. It's super engrossing. And yeah, it is. it is a rollicking ride, even though it's about such serious material and it's so old. Like, don't be put off by the fact that it is a film from 1931. It is incredibly modern in how engaging it is. The images in it just blazing into your memory. Yeah. There's a one shot in particular of his of this little girl with a ball and his shadow appears mm. and he's whistling the Hall of the Mountain King from Pier Gint. Yeah, it's a remarkable film. But yeah, the particularly if it for no other reason just for the the ending. The, the last scene, the courtroom scene at the end is extraordinary. Okay, Chris, bring us home. What is your recommendation for the week? Well, Charlie, last week I got caught out trying to cheat in this section of the podcast, which I've and taken on as taught you an important life lesson. I fully intend to never recommend another actual film on this section of the podcast. Um, so I'm going to cheat once more. Yay me. And instead of a podcast or a film or a trilogy of films, I'm going to recommend a book. And that is... Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris. It is one of the best pieces of film writing in book form you will ever find. It is an investigation into the five films nominated for the 1967 Best Picture Oscar. 
and how they shaped Hollywood going from old Hollywood to new Hollywood and how they act as this incredible lightning bolt at this one specific time. And it is entertaining. It is funny. It is amazing. That's my recommendation. I, You're I welcome. Back, I back it's a up. book. It's, it's pretty great. And in, act- in actual fact, it does it does lead you into wanting to investigate a lot of other great cinema from that period. It's I agree. It's probably the best book about film I've ever read. Um, and I think it actually is being made into a film. I think into a documentary. Yeah, there are rumors. I really hope so because the films that it's focusing on are In the Heat of the Night, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Doctor Doolittle, the original. So it's this amazing melting pot of all films wildly, could have chosen. Wildly different. So he chose all of them and put them in the book. So Yay! I chose all of them. Yay! Hey. You get a film. You get a film. You get a film. And that was the last anyone ever heard of Chris Edwards. Bye, guys. <laughs> well, some fantastic suggestions, except for Chris, as usual, who has to be the childish deviant. So it is a really good book. It's a really good book. You should all read it. You can find the links to all the articles we've talked about on this week's podcast at maketheswitch.com.au. Please subscribe to Switchcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to rate us and stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Charlie underscore David. Jess. At Miss Jess underscore Switch. Daniel. At Daniel Lamon And Troublesome Chris. If I'm still alive, I'm at Chrissy <laughs> Edwards. Like it? Follow it. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Make the Switch AU to stay up to date with all the latest reviews, news, trailers, and giveaways. And you can find all the notes and links to everything we've discussed on this week's podcast, as well as other episodes, by visiting switchcast.com.au. As well as Chris's obituary. <laughs> On next week's show, All the Money in the World was one of the most marred films of 2017 when Ridley Scott removed Kevin Spacey and replaced him with Christopher Plummer. So does he salvage the film? We'll have all the details next week. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great New Year's and we'll see you all in 2018.